Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, February 10th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Eric Lander, the president's top science advisor, resigned this week after admitting he'd been disrespectful and demeaning to colleagues. Stat's Lev Thatcher and Megan Maltini join us to discuss the fallout both in D.C. and in scientific circles. Then, Rick Pazder is not sorry. The FDA cancer czar called up Adam this week to discuss his apparent about face on accepting data generated in China to support cancer drug approvals. We discuss what it means for the industry and efforts to bring lower cost medications to the US. We'll start with a look at the biggest news in biopharma, but first a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's chief diversity officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash ask bigger questions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash ask bigger questions. So, Damien, we had Pfizer earnings this week, uh, and probably the big headline was the company's forecast for $100 billion in revenue for 2022. That is a huge number. It is. It's a record number for Pfizer and for any drug company in the history of human endeavor. Um, and as you might imagine, it owes largely to the demand for both their COVID-19 vaccine, which we know so well, but also Paxlovid, the uh, oral treatment for COVID-19 that is just ramping up commercialization around the world in which, you know, we can assume will be in pretty strong demand in the year to come. What I thought was interesting was not so much the headline, but the the subheadline, I guess, which was that Pfizer's stock price declined on the day, about 4%, which when you're as large as Pfizer is about $10 billion in value. And it basically is that Wall Street and, and, and many people in the investment community expected that record-setting number to be more record-setting. And so despite, uh, as uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla pointed out, despite this being um, a historic figure that they're forecasting, it was just not historic enough. It is funny, and it kind of has vibes of Gilead and hepatitis C to it. Like, oh, sure, you brought the biggest drug in history revenue-wise to market, but um, it's going to decline. So what are you doing now? <laughs> um, and, you know, there there are some caveats to the guidance, um, which Albert Borla detailed when he came on CNBC uh, and also on their conference call. Uh, he pointed out the forecasts for the vaccine and the drug, which totaled $54 billion of that $100 billion they're forecasting, those are only based on the contracts they've currently signed. And so there is an expectation they will sign more contracts for both the vaccine and the drug throughout the course of the year. And that number will – 
go up. But there's also a big question for Pfizer about the rest of its business, the non-COVID stuff. And is that growing? And like many companies in pharma, they've got some patent expirations coming up in the second half of the decade. And they, unlike the rest of pharma, they have a ton of this cash coming in from these COVID products. So they did talk about how they're going to put that to work in M&A. And they put out a number, $25 billion in revenue, in annual revenue, they expect to add by 2030 through M&A. So that's got to get the speculation going. What are they going to buy? The Gilead example is interesting because in both cases, it's how quickly success becomes an albatross for at least like very, very large drug companies. Um, You know, with with Gilead and hepatitis C, there sort of seemed to be a finite number of patients. And so while she was always looking over the horizon to like, okay, but what about when this ceases to be lucrative? And with Pfizer, it's even arguably more dramatic because nobody knows when the pandemic will quote unquote end, or at least in business terms, when demand for the vaccine and the drug will simply dry up. And so it's interesting that there's this sense of immediacy for Pfizer to spend all this cash that they've generated from the pandemic because um, in many ways, like the glory is fleeting. And to put Pfizer's big number into perspective, you know, Apple revenues for annual revenues are like $360 billion. So (laughs) we're still, pharma is still a little, a little smaller. Well, Speaking about the pandemic and whether it will end soon, uh, there have been some big developments this week when it comes to mask mandates. Multiple states, particularly Democratic ones, and people note the political leanings of the states that have removed their mask mandates. But I think the only reason the Democratic ones are doing it now is because the Republican ones haven't had mask mandates to remove. So so now the Democratic states are saying they're going to lift their mask mandates here in New Jersey. um, That's happening um, not just just in schools, but also in childcare settings. And they talked about the under five vaccine becoming available as part of that decision making process. And of course, we are watching that closely because Friday morning of this week, we're going to see the data next week on the 15th. Tuesday is the FDA advisory committee meeting around that. And so there's going to be a lot of movement on that next week, which we'll talk about a lot on the podcast then. But as for right now, we're in this period of states moving forward Uh, And the CDC saying it's too early. If you guys, if you look at the CDC transmission map, it's still completely red. There's like 12 (sighs) blue counties. I have to say, you know, I think cases have come down here in Massachusetts. They have. And um, although I I find myself not sort of paying close attention to the numbers like I was just a few weeks ago, like at the beginning of January, Um, you know, here in Massachusetts, again, uh, you mentioned the mass mandate. So the governor announced that for schools, Mask mandates are being lifted, you know, for all public schools here. And I think similarly, like you said, in New Jersey, and then you've had Connecticut do something similar and now New York too, right, Damien? It's, I mean, it seems, it is interesting yeah. you got this cluster of Northeast states all doing it at the same time. Right. It did happen here in New York. And, and to be honest, I don't totally understand the impetus. Um, Adam, as you mentioned, the case counts in a lot of these states have declined, but the pandemic uh, by all means is still happening. And of all the things, of all the measures that have been taken that are described sometimes as onerous, wearing a mask indoors seems like it's on the lower end. Um, I know, you know, some speculation, at least here in New York, is our Governor Kathy Hochul is, of course, facing uh, an election 
relatively soon. And, you know, with some constituencies, the mask mandate has been unpopular and that could be a valence. But that doesn't explain, for example, Massachusetts or some of these other states. So it, it can't solely be a political matter. I don't know. It may be more of a headline than it is something that changes a lot of personal behavior. But I'm a little in the dark on the thinking behind it, to be honest. Meg, you may feel differently about this because, you know, you have a child who's not vaccinated. But I know like for uh, like for us here, like like my wife works outside the house and we were she was getting she was testing herself all the time, you know, during this Omicron phase. But that we kind of stopped doing that. Um, you know, we're wearing masks and everything. But like, I guess you sort of feel like at this point, it's, you know, it's almost like what Helen Branswell told us, you know, that it, it's inevitable. We're all going to get it. I, I don't know. I, I do feel like there's kind of this feeling of sort of resignation to the fact that, like, you know, whatever happened is going to happen. I, I don't know if that's a good thing to think or feel, but. It's just sort of the reality of the situation right now, at least at least in this household it is. Yeah, I mean, even having a, a three-year-old, we, we do worry about um, exposing him. But at the same time, you know, we just talked with our pediatrician about this and, and she helped us think about the trade-offs, you know, the trade-offs between the socialization and learning empathy and things like that for, hmm. for three and four-year-olds who could benefit from seeing people without masks. Um, and, and I've been doing a lot of reading about how much masks, do they really help when you're three years old? Uh, of course, if there are teachers are wearing them, that probably helps. But at the same time, being able to see your teacher is nice. So yeah, there's just a lot of things to think about here. But as we are now rounding, you know, two years into this pandemic, and hopefully we're reaching a period, no matter how long it lasts, of a lull. I'm really hoping we get there, although a lot of people are warning that taking away these mask mandates is going to extend the plateau of the Omicron surge, um, that we can start weighing those risk benefits more um, and thinking about things other than avoid COVID at all costs, you know, as much as we still want to avoid it. President Biden's appointment of Eric Lander as White House science advisor was heralded at the time as historic. It was the first time that role was elevated to a cabinet level position. And Biden said he wanted Lander to set a course for the country's scientific and technology strategy for the next 75 years. Lander was, of course, a monumental but already controversial figure in science before taking this role. He is the founding director of the genetic research powerhouse, the Broad Institute, and played a key role in the Human Genome Project. But he's ruffled a lot of feathers, to say the least. Six years ago, Stat's legendary science writer, the late Sharon Begley, wrote that Lander had morphed from science god to punching bag, chronicling the pent-up animosity from the biomedical community that spilled out after Lander wrote an essay on the history of CRISPR gene editing technology. The essay appeared to minimize the contributions of the two women scientists who went on to win the Nobel Prize for their work, while failing to disclose Lander's own potential conflicts of interest. This week, Lander resigned from his White House post after Politico revealed an investigation into his behavior that concluded he bullied and mistreated subordinates. Joining us now to examine the fallout are two of our stat colleagues, Washington correspondent Lev Fasher and science writer Megan Multeni. Welcome back to The Read Out Loud, both of you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. So, Lev, um, you've been following this really closely. Actually, I found out about this news because of your story. Um, can you tell us more about what led up to Lander's resignation? Absolutely. So essentially in December, the White House kicked off an investigation of Lander's workplace behavior that was prompted by a number of complaints that had been submitted to White House lawyers about the way Lander was treating his own employees. The complaints 
largely detailed verbal abuse, bullying, uh, a, a lack of respect for the people Lander was supervising in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Of course, President Biden had pledged on Inauguration Day to fire anyone found to be bullying or disrespecting their colleagues or employees on the spot. Clearly, that didn't happen here. This all only came to light because of Alex Thompson's report in Politico late last week. And once more details emerged on Monday and the broader press corps started asking questions of the White House about Lander's future prospects in the administration, it became pretty clear he wasn't long for that job, and he resigned soon after. So, Megan, help us put into context the role that Lander plays in the scientific world. You know, and does this come as a surprise to that community? Yeah. So, Eric Lander, you know, embodies kind of a past era where, I think, as our colleague Matt Herper wrote really compellingly yesterday, the kind of biggest egos in the room were the ones that got the most done or people paid the most attention to. Um, And, you know, Lander certainly is a a huge personality. But a lot of what he does in science is not so much publish himself so much as have big ideas, marshal resources, push um, projects forward, and really be a driving force behind bringing the kind of big science, the big marquee projects to biology. At the same time, you know, that big ego and, you know, thinking that your ideas are the right ones and the best ones and, you know, the ones that are the most important has certainly over the years created an atmosphere um, in the scientific community of feeling like Eric Lander is out for Eric Lander. And we see that, you know, in Sharon's reporting on the, you know, kind of history of CRISPR that Eric wrote that, you know, minimized the, you know, now Nobel Prize winning work of Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. Um, I will say that, you know, the reactions to this are not one of complete surprise. In speaking with people who've known him, you know, quite well over the years, the one thing they are surprised by are just kind of the outright yelling. It seems like that's (laughs) not something that they experienced in their, you know, professional relationships with him, the kind of screaming fits. But certainly a lot of the other behavior rang true. This was, you know, not a secret by, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And I think what people are feeling right now is a mix of sadness for people who knew him really well, in part to just they're worried that this is going to hurt um science in in America, in part because we are coming off of four years where there was a really anti-science agenda and they saw this as an opportunity to kind of, you know, get science back in the spotlight, get people excited about science. And Eric Lander has, that has always been one of his traits is getting kind of the average or one of his strengths is getting one, you know, the average person excited about science. So I think there's, you know, some trepidation there, but then obviously there's also a lot of, you know, feeling like, hey, like, this behavior is unacceptable. We've known it for a long time. It's great he's out. And, you know, now that 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 distraction is out of that workplace, like maybe some of these big science initiatives can actually get pushed forward. So we remain uh, in a pandemic, as careful listeners to this podcast will know. And in that context, uh, Lev, this leaves another vacancy in President Biden's scientific leadership. He hasn't yet nominated a successor to Francis Collins as NIH director. His FDA nominee, Robert Califf, is apparently having some issues getting confirmed by the Senate, as you pointed out. And 
Uh, Javier Becerra, the HHS secretary, has been criticized for not playing a stronger role in the pandemic response. So what's going on from the White House angle? Right. And as Megan notes, President Biden campaigned on restoring science to its rightful place in American government. When he appointed Eric Lander in January 2021, he tasked him with reinvigorating American science. And yet here we are a year into his administration and we find ourselves in a moment where the public has immense trust issues with the CDC. There's a $40 billion federal research agency in the NIH that doesn't currently have a leader. The FDA as well, uh, being directed by an acting commissioner, as you point out. And now the White House science advisor, who's the first person in that role to ever sit in the White House cabinet. Uh, Eric Lander is the first person also from a life sciences background to hold that role. He's resigned amid scandal. So I think it's very safe to say that the White House is not where it wants to be in terms of fulfilling its scientific ambitions. Moreover, the midterm elections are coming up in November. Republicans are heavily favored to win back control of one or both sides of Capitol Hill. And that essentially gives the White House a, a deadline for all of its scientific initiatives if, if they want to get their priorities done. And now it seems like first they're going to have to nominate and confirm a new director for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. So absolutely not where they want to be right now. And Megan, we understand you've been doing some reporting um, about this kind of behavior in academia. How common are you finding that it is? And does this turn of events give any reason to expect it might be about to change? It seems like from some of the more recent data, some more recent surveys, it's not. It's hard to say whether bullying is actually getting worse or people are just getting more comfortable kind of both like recognizing when bullying is happening and having mechanisms for reporting it. Um, but that being said, you know, a lot of the people I've spoken to say that academia is especially ripe for um, kind of letting those types of behaviors go without there being consequences, in particular, if that person is seen as, you know, providing a huge benefit to that organization, if they're bringing in a lot of money, if they're bringing in, you know, a lot of fame or awards or publications, you know, some of the research that I spoke to described Lander as, you know, really being kind of emblematic of this, you know, period of science where anything goes and, you know, being aggressive is kind of the, the most important um, quality for someone to have. You know, there was kind of this persistent myth out there that you had to be a jerk to be a great, a great scientist. And I, and I think the people who study this feel that that is changing. So a number of the researchers I spoke to said that they think that this may be a really important inflection point, in particular in the STEM fields. And they say that, you know, this zero abusive policy is, is pretty stunning, you know, actually, when you think about it, and if universally adopted, you know, would represent a significant you know, change to kind of the way science has has gone about um, creating, you know, workplace environments. So I think, um, you know, I think the new thing I'm hearing people say is it's not good enough to just be a good scientist. Like you also have to be a good person and create a workplace in which your, you know, a diverse group of people can flourish. Because at the end of the day, science is a team sport. We all know that. <laughs> and um, and so creating those environments are actually creating those conducive environments are actually what's going to lead to more innovation. So Lev, back to you. Uh, in your DC circles, are you hearing any non-jerk 
successor <laughs> are are hearing any non-jerk names uh, being touted or being talked about as potential successors to Lander? Well, I'm hearing names uh, and I'm not hearing that the people associated with those names are jerks. So that's a, a step, I suppose. Uh, one prevailing sentiment that I've heard is given the Lander scandal and given uh, a broader push for you know diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in science, the White House would really like to avoid appointing a, a white man as Eric Lander's successor. There is one potential exception to that rule, and it is Francis Collins, the recently retired NIH director. Ooh, the plot thickens. <laughs> I, I wouldn't get too excited yet because uh, he just retired, and I think there's a view that there's no chance he would do it in a long-term way, uh, but, but certainly a name... Uh, it being floated. There are a couple other logical candidates. There's Alondra Nelson, who's really a, a celebrated social sciences researcher who is was Lander's number two at OSTP. There are uh, Francis Arnold and Maria Zuber, who are the, the co-chairs of the presidential scientific advisory committee, essentially. And that's actually the job Lander held during the Obama administration. So it's kind of a, a logical stepping stone to running the office. You know, it's it's very early. Lander's resignation actually let him stay in office for about 11 more days. So, you know, they can appoint an acting director. There's no huge, huge urgency, at least week to week. But as I mentioned, there are a lot of priorities they want to get across the finish line. So they, they will want to move quickly and stay tuned for more stat reporting here. So this is going to sound ignorant, but you know, having experienced the last administration, which was relatively messy, and I recall very well the departures of people like Rex Tillerson and Tom Price, and likewise how they had kind of noticeable effects on, I guess, respectively, American foreign and domestic policy. Beyond, you know, Lander's resignation obviously is, is important for him, is for science and for him as a figurehead of science and all of the um, political implications of that. But I guess my curiosity is like OSTP what do they do? <laughs> and and do they matter that much? And, and how disruptive is his departure to whatever it is that they do? It's a very valid question. So to zoom out, there are actually two jobs that Eric Lander held and that most White House science advisors held. One is White House science advisor, the person who the president asks for advice about science. The other is running the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. They're largely interchangeable, but they are technically two different jobs. And OSTP is the White House office that essentially oversees the scientific budgets of the rest of the federal government and gives scientific input on the rest of the federal government's work. So that makes OSTP deeply involved in several of the Biden administration's signature scientific initiatives. One is a $65 billion plan to completely overhaul the way the United States responds to pandemics, apropos of COVID, of course. Another is the proposal to create ARPA-H. It's kind of DARPA for healthcare. It's this high-stakes scientific agency aimed at funding breakthroughs, essentially, as opposed to the NIH's comparatively conservative model of, of funding basic science research via individual grants to largely university-based researchers. And lastly, there's the cancer moonshot Long a priority for President Biden, even dating back to his time as vice president and when his son died of glioblastoma in 2015. So those are, I would say, the big three, the pandemic response, ARPA-H, and the cancer moonshot. 
that, you know, there are questions now about who is going to champion them on Capitol Hill, who's going to go on TV to talk about them, because there's no Francis Collins, there's no Eric Lander, and time is running out. So that's what OSTP has been working on. And those are the initiatives that are at least potentially now in jeopardy, given the total dearth of scientific leadership throughout the Biden administration. Levin Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Richard Pazer is the longtime director of the FDA's division that reviews and approves cancer drugs. Naturally, occupying that position makes Pazer a very powerful and influential drug regulator, so when he speaks publicly or publishes a paper in medical journals, the biotech and pharma industry pays close attention. A few years back, Pazer made public statements that opened the door for Chinese-made cancer drugs to enter the U.S. market under fairly relaxed conditions. More recently, however, Pazer has reversed his position. In words and actions, Pazer is now raising a host of concerns about Chinese cancer drugs that could keep them out of the U.S. for a long time. And as you might expect, his about face on this issue has caused quite a stir in biopharma circles. Adam, you had a chance to speak with Pazer this week. What's going on? Well, yeah, Damien, you know, the most immediate impact is going to be felt by Eli Lilly and its uh, Chinese drug making partner, Innovent. Now, these two companies are trying to bring a checkpoint inhibitor drug. Uh, you know, this is the class of drugs uh, that we, we probably know Keytruda from Merck is the best example. They're trying to bring this drug called Cintilimab for, to treat patients with lung cancer. They're trying to bring it to the United States. Uh, today, as we record this podcast, or later today, the FDA is holding an advisory committee meeting to review that drug. And, and by all accounts, the FDA has kind of already decided that they're going to reject Centilimab. They're not going to approve it here for the reasons um, that have kind of been outlined lately by Pastor, just that his general concerns about the quality of data coming out of China. And so if the FDA does follow through and, and, and rejects Centilimab, this Eli Lilly innovant drug, I mean, the implications for that you know, are much more broader for other companies trying to do similar things. So let's take a step back and understand how we got here. What is the origin story behind these companies thinking Pazder kind of had an open door policy on Chinese cancer drugs? Yeah, so we go back to April 2019, Megan. There was a meeting, uh, the American Association for Cancer Research was having their big annual meeting and they were having a panel session that featured a bunch of uh, Chinese pharmaceutical and biotech executives and talking about how they could crack the Western market with their drugs that were developed in China. And Richard Pazer spoke at that during that panel session. And he was pretty adamant that, you know, he was very open and inviting for these drugs coming to the United States. You know, he said that a question that he receives often is whether the FDA would accept Chinese only data. So meaning clinical trials that were, that were conducted entirely in China, would those data be acceptable to the FDA as the basis for an approval? And he said, yes, they would. And he also went on to say that, you know, he, he talked about pricing. He talked about the fact that back in 2019, I think that there were something like six PD-1 targeted cancer immunotherapy drugs approved in the United States. They were all priced similarly. There was no price competition. And so while the FDA does not use price as kind of a determinant for approving drugs here, he talked about that and said that, you know, if these companies basically conducted similar studies, that they could very fairly easily get their drugs approved here. And so as we mentioned before, when Pazzer speaks in public, people tend to listen. So 
what ensued after he made those remarks in 2019. Yeah, I mean, people picked up on these comments that he made back in April 2019. And for instance, I, like I mentioned, Lilly and Innovant. Now, these are two companies that were already working together on this drug called Cintilimab. They were working together in China. This drug was developed there. It eventually got approved in China. And and they were they were selling the drug in China. They hear Pazder's comments and they say, well, you know, we have data. We have an approved drug. Let, let's bring it to the United States. So they submitted an application to the FDA to, be, to use that data from China and try to get the drug approved here. You definitely saw the biotech and pharma industry sort of respond to Pazder and, and listen to what he said. And then basically a lot of business activity around bringing chi Chinese cancer drugs to the United States really accelerated. But now, as we mentioned... Pastor's reversed his position, and he detailed this to you pretty um, enthusiastically, I guess, on the phone this week. What did he say? <laughs> yeah. So I, I say that we had a conversation. It was more like Rick Pastor talking to me for about 20 minutes and I sort of barely getting a few words in. Um, so, yeah, he has shifted his position. It's, it's kind of done a 180. And he admits the fact. I mean, he said one of the kind of defining quotes in my story this week was, you know, I have the right to change my mind. Um, and he did change his mind. Um, you know, basically, for all intent and purposes, what he, what Pazur is saying is that things have changed. The situations have changed. Um, we, you know, he, he's looking at these cancer trials that were conducted in China. And he has questions. He has questions about the quality of the data. He has questions about whether or not those data are generalizable again are you know will will the effect that you're seeing in those studies be the same as if you tested those in a in a more broad population of you know different racial and ethnic diversity um you know the studies are not done here in the United States um and he's also concerned that these studies are not being compared to the current standard of care so for instance the Lilly Innovant drugs in Tilimab, you know, they they did their study in lung cancer and they compared it to chemotherapy. Now, here in the United States, the standard of care in this in this indication is Keytruda plus chemotherapy, and they didn't compare their PD-1 checkpoint inhibitor to Keytruda. And so, Pastor's raising these problems, and all this is going to come up at uh, the FDA advisory committee meeting that's happening today. Right. So the timing here is awkward in that he published this before this public hearing in which independent experts will weigh in on this. And then the timing of this conversation is awkward because we're recording it before that meeting and you listening to this, it has probably already elapsed. But uh, entertain me, Adam, I guess. What, what do you think, what is expected to happen at this panel meeting today with all of this as prologue? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the whole situation is a little bit unusual, right, Damien? Because Pastor is a really powerful guy. And I think he, he essentially has, there's no one at the FDA, even the commissioner who tells Richard Pastor what to do. And so a lot of people's eyebrows were raised by him sort of raising all these issues, both in print and then like in, like in interviews with me, where, you know, he's basically telling everyone that he's going to reject this drug before it actually happens. You know, it's a really unusual situation. You know, oftentimes at these panels, the experts are asked to to basically to vote on whether or not they want to recommend the approval of these drugs, they're not being asked that today. They're, you know, basically it's almost like a fait accompli. The, everyone knows that the FDA is not going to approve this drug. So the questions that the panelists are being asked to opine on and to give recommendations about are the kind of studies, the kind of data that the FDA should ask for in order to support approval here. Maybe coming out of this meeting, we will have much more clarity about exactly what kind of data is needed if you're going to bring a Chinese cancer drug to the United States. And I think that's something that 
that when I talk to biotech executives and pharma executives about this, that's something that they really want. So in addition to the sort of implications for each company, there's, of course, the broader question of what this means for bringing lower-priced cancer medicines to the U.S. market. Of course, on the one hand, the FDA has stated, even in its advisory committee documents for the meeting today, that it's not within its purview to think about the price of drugs. On the other hand, this is something Rick Pastor has talked about for years. I remember one of my first AACRs maybe a decade ago, I heard him on a panel. The whole panel was talking about whether ODAC, this advisory committee, should take into account the price of cancer drugs. And a lot of folks on that panel thought that it should. And there's a fair amount of pushback after your story came out, I saw within the biotech Twitter community, Adam, um, of people saying, we really need these lower priced PD-1s. Then Lilly came out with a statement saying, essentially, its pricing strategy, if the drug were approved, and we have posted the full statement on Twitter, folks want to read it because Lilly wanted everybody to see its full context of what it was saying. But it said it would give a 40% wholesale acquisition cost discount to the PD-1s, similar to the the biggest discounts we see with biosimilars. Um, I think there are some criticisms that even that is really not disrupting the market completely, but it would be a discount. So what does this mean for for lower priced cancer drugs? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about this. Uh, You know, is a 40% price cut meaningful? I mean, you know, on the face of it, sure, it is. I don't know if anyone here took economic classes in college, but, you know, like more competition is supposed to lead to lower prices. And with pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, we know that that doesn't happen. We also have a really complicated financial or healthcare financial system here. So I think, as you alluded to, Meg, there, there are questions about whether if you like lower the kind of the wholesale acquisition cost of this drug by 40%, you know, will that translate to lower costs for, uh, for patients? Um, or will that discount get gobbled up by the machinery of healthcare with all the middlemen and all the insurance companies and, and people wouldn't actually really see any cost savings? And I think, you know, that unfortunately that's a possibility. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who you think should be the new White House Chief Science Advisor. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Next week.